This episode of the Security Ledger Podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, number 188. Behavior really hasn't changed over the last four years. It's actually surprising how steady people's behavior has been and not in the best way. Um, people love to reuse their passwords. They don't really change them after they, if they know that they've been involved in some sort of like a breach or they say like, okay, X company was breached. I have an account with that company but I'm not going to change my password. Internet users are well aware of the dangers posed by weak passwords, reused passwords, and the like. But for more than three years, surveys conducted by LastPass suggest that knowledge of the risks isn't changing password behavior. In the second part of our show this week, we talked to Katie Petrillo of the firm LogMeIn about why so many people can't seem to bring themselves to care about password security and what companies can do to change their thinking. But first... How do I build a company that can both eliminate nonviolent crime, but in a way that doesn't remove our civil liberties? There's a gray area that we operate in today, and it is a constant debate internally of let's not cross the line. Like many technology entrepreneurs, Garrett Langley's company started with a question that he couldn't answer. The solve rate for property crime in his community outside Atlanta was pitifully low. The problem Langley came to understand after talking to law enforcement was a lack of evidence. Without a clear way to tie criminals to a particular crime scene, it was difficult to make arrests, let alone win convictions. One thing that would help, he heard, were more license plate readers. But licensing and deploying that technology was prohibitively expensive. The company that grew out of that revelation, Flock Security, is a startup in the surveillance technology market that sells inexpensive car identifying cameras to law enforcement and increasingly to individuals, neighborhoods, and homeowners associations. In our first segment, we interview Garrett about how the Flock technology works and how his company is trying to manage the civil liberty and privacy implications of its technology. We also speak with Dave Moss, a senior investigative researcher at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who says that the growing adoption of consumer surveillance gear like Flock or the Ring Smart Doorbell is raising serious privacy and civil liberties concerns for everyone. When, when you think about the genesis and kind of the core hypothesis of the business, it's like, how do you democratize this technology? Because for the last 20 or 30 years, this the notion of license plate reading is successful. Like, it works. The problem has always been bad deployments or, or, or ineffective use cases. Um, so when we went out to the market, it was like, hey, we're not going to go put two of these on the highway. We're going to go put 20 of these in a neighborhood. And so, like, if you come into my neighborhood, we know you're here. Like, and if you commit a crime, we're going to know who's here. And we're going to know who lives here and who doesn't live here. And while obviously, you know, it is your right to go onto any public road you want, it is the type of evidence, the type of data 
that a good detective can turn into a case, right? So you can't make an arrest because someone was in your neighborhood when a, when a car break-in occurred. But that's the, that's the beginnings of, it, of building a case. So, so this is able to actually catch more than just uh, scanning license plates. It's, it's really a um, kind of ruggedized surveillance camera that also can pick out license plates and, and record that information. Yeah, what we've come to call it is a vehicle fingerprint. And so, you know, just like a human fingerprint, uh, every car tends to be unique. Um, a license plate is a pretty big, unique identifier. But we will look for things like, does it have dents? Does it have a roof rack? Does it have hubcaps? Does it have damage? Uh, what's the color? What's the manufacturer? And there's really there's two primary use cases for the product. What we think about it in terms of being proactive and reactive. On the reactive side, we hope this never happens. This is a crime has occurred. It's already happened. We need to use the tool to capture evidence. You know, for most of our neighborhoods, just based off of general statistics, that might happen once or twice a year. So clock becomes more of an insurance policy, you know, to like, to make sure that when that does happen, because statistically it will, you've got the right evidence. And then on the proactive side, we are tapped into what's called the FBI's NCIC. It's the National Criminal Information Center. And that is a list of about a quarter of a million, quarter of a million vehicles that at any given time are wanted for varying reasons. Amber alert, stolen car, outstanding warrant. And when one of those cars drives by a camera, we will in real time notify the nearest officer. So for a lot of our neighborhoods, you know, it's the peace of mind knowing that if a crime did occur over the course of a year, they have the evidence, but also knowing that if a would-be criminal driving around a stolen car enters their community, we're going to call the police before anything bad can happen. So one of the things that we found so interesting that's unique about us is we do take privacy more seriously than probably anyone else in the market. Actually, definitively, um, because, you know, as I said before, I don't come from law enforcement. So when we designed the company, it was as a civilian would think about it, right? So as a simple example, I don't think this type of data should live indefinitely in the cloud. I just, I don't think it's necessary. Like, it's not what I would want, right? And so we wipe the footage after 30 days. That's like, that is such a small detail but when the incumbent philosophy is store the data forever and resell it, like that, that's a big deal. And what that allows us to do on the government side is tell a chief and a city council, tell your community you're doing this. Get them engaged. Because public safety won't be solved with technology. It's going to be solved by community engagement. And if your tactics are such that you have to hide what you're doing, you'll never get the community engaged. We're huge proponents. We push all of our chiefs and all of our city managers and city councils to go out to the community. And like one of our favorite things to do when we sign on a new police department, <clears throat> the first thing we do is host a community event. And now today they're virtual. They used to be in person. Uh, but like just last night, we had a community event in Texas. There's something like a hundred, you know, hundred neighborhoods showed up to learn what the police department was doing to help protect them. That's incredible from my perspective because that used to, you know, a year ago, a police department might buy this type of technology. It was a little bit like, oh, we're buying private data. It's being resold. You know, a lot of privacy issues that the chief might not want to have to dive into because he wasn't in love with how it worked. And now he can be really proud of what he's launching. Um, what do you hear from the public? 
there's generally a negative sentiment until they understand how it all works, right? So they assume the worst. Why is the police tracking me? Why is the police capturing all this information? Is this data being resold? Is this an invasion of my privacy? And, and our, whole, our whole point of view, and, and the, we help our chiefs explain this, is like, because in our experience, police departments are typically understaffed, under-resourced, and this becomes a source multiplier for them. The average detective isn't sitting there with an empty caseload. She's overworked, and with Flock, she can try to process those cases faster. In addition, you know, we do have auditing. Uh, we do have formal policies that we require the agencies to, to put out. And so we try to think about it of what's the ethical approach. And the civilian really is the customer, right? Like, you and I are the customers of, of the police chief. You know, we're the one that pays his salary. And so, you know, we invite the criticism of, of both individual civilians um, and other organizations, whether it's the ACLU or the EFF, say, hey, tell us how to do it better. Okay, so let's talk about the bigger issues now, which is, you know, this is part of a, obviously, there's there's been a, a trend and a lot written recently, just, you know, whether it's the ring doorbell cameras or just, you know, run-of-the-mill um, Nest surveillance cameras. You know, there are a lot of these. They are helping police, you know, at least get leads on crimes, if not solve them. I mean, I guess at one level, you know, individual homeowners, if they want to put a camera out, they've got a right to do that. On the other hand, you know, we don't want to end up like China or something where, you know, we're living in a in a surveillance state where, you know, there are cameras, you know, kind of tracking our associations and, and assigning us social rankings based on, you know, what characters we hang yeah. out with, you know. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is how do you not become China? That's my goal. Clearly, you know, they're doing it for a reason, and it's for their, you know, societal and, and governmental goals. But I would argue, like, our, our private obligation as a company is to help America stay America while increasing public safety. You know, that's, that's my goal. My, my goal as a business owner and the founder is how do I build a company that can both eliminate crime, because I think it's something that we can actually do, eliminate nonviolent crime, but in a way that doesn't remove our civil liberties. There's a gray area that we operate in today, and it is a constant debate internally of let's not cross the line. So for us, one philosophy is what we would call objective evidence. So subjectivity is something maybe like, oh, th those, pe those people are associates. Those two individuals who none of them have committed a crime, are associates, and we're going to track that. Oh, this person's skin color. Oh, this person's gait. When you get into people, it gets very subjective and very predictive very quickly, and so we avoid that. What we like is, hey, this car, we don't know who's inside of it, but this car was here at this time. This car is stolen. Um, it doesn't have any inference about who did it just what was there um so for us that's an important distinction is about objective versus subjective policing um, we also try to stay pretty far away from predictive policing you know trying to trying to infer who might have done something um versus saying like this is just the evidence this is just the hard facts it's a demand had all the answers um but i think for better or for worse, 
you know, we are trying to drag the local and state governments along and say, hey, we need to have these debates. And it's one of the reasons why you, you asked, you know, had I ever talked to the ACLU, one of my favorite things to do is to go on places like NPR and have a live debate with you because I think it needs to happen. And I think it needs to happen in public, not, you know, behind the scenes um, because this technology is going to exist. Like we are going to have more surveillance. We are going Then the question is just how do they work? What do you hear from them when you do those debates? So I, I think that <laughs> what I generally hear is they're really worried about facial recognition and they're really worried about communities of color and communities of less affluence being disproportionately failed. And I actually agree with that. We got to be really careful about what data is being used to train these algorithms. Because if subjective data is put into an objective system, it has now been tainted. So for me personally, you know, I got the question during this third party audit, how are you going to prevent that? And I said, you know, I, I, I don't know what I can do. You know, we're, we're one company, but what I can tell you we're trying to do, and I, and I say this wholeheartedly, is like there's a democratization element of my product that is anyone can afford it. And, and that typically helps. You know, obviously we're talking a lot about this because of the Ahmed Arbery case. What is that case? Obviously that wasn't a car, he was jogging, but... Um, according to the community, there had been a series of property crimes that, you know, uh, had not been addressed. It doesn't seem to be any paper record of that. But um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on what the Ahmed Arbery case signifies for you. It actually brings up a really important point, which is our disbelief of vigilante police. There is a reason why I don't have a badge. It's because I have not gone through the training and I am not like, audited and continually educated on how to be a police officer. And so one of, the, one of the big things we get asked all the time is, hey, can I set up alerts so that I can get a text message when someone enters my neighborhood? And it's like, no, you can't. Because what are you going to do next? Because I'm afraid for both you and the other person about what's going to happen next. Now, what I will do is notify your local law enforcement because they are trained to handle this. They have a badge. And it is their job and their civic duty for us to do that. So I actually, it's disheartening that it happened in my home state, but I think it speaks to something that we believe really deeply as a company and as individuals, which is like, you might not trust your local law enforcement and I, I cannot help you do that. But what I can tell you is like vigilante policing is not the solution because the men and women in blue, it is their job at least. In the case of a sheriff's department, it is an elected official. In the case of police department, it is still a chief of police. And our point of view is like this is exactly how it's not supposed to work. Garrett Langley, CEO and founder of Flock Security, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger. Thank you. See ya. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by LastPass. That's an interesting origin story for a technology company, but how concerned should ordinary citizens be about the proliferation of low-cost license plate scanners and other surveillance technology? To answer that question, we invited Dave Moss of the Electronic Frontier Foundation into the studio to talk about flock security and the increasing consumerization of surveillance. My name is Dave Moss. 
And my title is Senior Investigative Researcher at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I work on EFF's Threat Lab. So Flock is a company that markets automated license plate readers. Most of the companies out there that sell license plate readers are marketing them to police departments. Uh, Flock is marketing it to police departments, but they identified an additional market that they've been really catering to, and that's homeowners associations. So what Flock tends to do is go to local communities and neighborhoods and try to sell them on this very powerful surveillance technology um, in a very commercial aspect. So this is private license plate readers and license plate reading reader hosting software offered by Flock to private individuals and private groups. How common are these technologies? What are you guys seeing in terms of their their frequency out there in the community? So in terms of license plate readers in general, not Flock, but just license plate readers in general, I think most major cities have some sort of license plate reader being used by law enforcement. But uh, I would say when it comes to Flock, you know, I think there there are a few communities that we hear about. Like, this is not something that necessarily gets very publicized, but there's some communities in Georgia and some communities in California. I mean, if you're in the Los Angeles area, you might run into it. If you're in Georgia, maybe in the Atlanta area, those kind of suburbs, you may come across it. Um, certainly in Florida, I think that it's popping up. Um, but, you know, it's... Flock in particular is probably not going to be super common. Um, and I think for them, they're very excited about that because that means they have this unlimited pool of homeowners associations to go to. But the only reason that they, they are going after homeowners associations is because another company called Vigilant Solutions has pretty much captured the, uh, the law enforcement government side of things. Flock is able to chip off a little here and there in, in, of their market share, but like, Vigilant is definitely the like Coke in that market with there being no Pepsi. So let's talk about what this means from a kind of civil liberties and privacy standpoint. On the one hand, um, you know, uh, preventing property crime, a uh, laudable goal. Uh, on the other hand, kind of putting the tools of surveillance into the hands of really basically consumers um, and more or less leaving it to them to figure out what to do with it. I guess that's that's the, the, the concern I would have kind of just thinking about this. But I'd be interested in EFF's thoughts on uh, this technology. Sure. So the, one of the first things to point out is that license plate readers are very controversial and very privacy invasive technology. In fact, they are so controversial and so sensitive that you know generally this is reserved for law enforcement. Law enforcement officers have to go through very strict training, developed policies that are reviewed up and down the chain. There is an audit mechanism to making sure that people aren't abusing the system. There's a whole range of safeguards in place, including everything from state laws that have been put in place to regulate how, license, how law enforcement agencies use license plate readers. What we have with Flock is Flock is going to people who aren't peace officers, who don't have training in law enforcement, don't have training in cybersecurity, don't have training in privacy. They have none of these, these, these skills or training or, or you know, back background in which to manage a surveillance network. But yet Flock is selling it to them anyways. It's interesting. It's interesting because speaking with Flock CEO, it's clear that that 
you know, some of these concerns kind of are, you know, the company is certainly aware of them. And he talked about features that, you know, when you go to search on something, it's kind of asking for a reason to search for, for a license plate number or something like that. So I mean, maybe kind of some kind of social enforcement there, but my, my overall, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, which is the applications of this are quite extensive and more or less open-ended, um, and we don't really understand exactly, given that the, the technology is being kind of floated out there, how it, how it might be used. And, and you mentioned a couple I hadn't even thought of, you know, divorce di- agreement, you know, divorce disputes, child custody disputes, and those types of interpersonal um, legal uh, yeah. battles. And, right? and that doesn't even raise what, what happens if ICE wants to get hold of that footage because they want to in- investigate the documentation status of all of the uh, yard and lawn workers and pool workers who come and visit people's homes like or or how it might be used uh, for racial profiling when you know somebody just starts calling the cops because they see uh, a car driven by a, a, a black driver um, and then they use this data to you know hand it over to the police I mean we have seen flock you know talk about you know having technology that can identify a car that might be beat up or need, has a bad paint job or is damaged in some kind. And that is really, you know, I mean, that could have all sorts of, of, of potential dangers if it's starting to red flag people based on the condition of their vehicle. When, when people call, we get asked about this all the time. People will call me up and say, you know, our homeowners association is looking at doing this, or even I'm a homeowners association president and people are asking me about this. Like, what do we need to know? And one of the things I, I say is that if your homeowners association was proposing putting private detectives on every entrance and exit to your neighborhood, and they were going to write down your comings and goings every single day and store it indefinitely, would you be cool with that? And some people would be cool with that. A lot of people wouldn't be. But for some reason, because it's in a camera and it's maybe unobtrusive, people seem to sometimes be a little bit more comfortable with it. But ultimately, what we're talking about is the nosy neighbor with the binoculars, but amped up on technology. And you raise the other question as well, which is, you know, Flock as the providers, obviously aggregating all this data from from their, you know, many different installations, that of course becomes a valuable source of information either for, you know, cyber criminals and malicious actors um, or potentially, uh, you know, law enforcement and, and the government. The CEO says that he's had conversations with you guys. Have you talked about this issue of i don't recall i don't recall talking to to the guy from flock um certainly we've appeared in the same news articles before and so maybe that counts as talking but i don't recall talking to this guy we have repeatedly raised concerns that uh you know in california where we're based if you operate a license plate reader or you access license plate reader data you are obligated under state law to put a policy on your website or have a policy available upon request that lays out how it's going to be used who can use it what are the audit procedures for it like all of these requirements and what we've seen is flock goes around selling it to homeowners associations and these home organizations never have these policies. They don't even know they're supposed to have these policies. And so that seems incredibly irresponsible to me. And maybe Flock is telling them about this. If they are, they need to do a better job of, of emphasizing that in California, at least, people, private citizens are on the hook uh, if that, those uh, systems are abused. 
this seems sort of like a future shock problem, right? Where in, in previous generations, the, the transformational technology that came along was, was pretty centralized and so maybe and maybe slower moving. And so there was at least the opportunity for for governments and, and societies to put their head around what types of rules of the road there should be. This seems to be running ahead of the ability of um, policymakers to address the the very real risks that you, that you talk about, you know, privacy, security, uh, civil liberties, and so on. Uh, I wish that we could take a whole bunch of legislators from like the 60s and 70s and bring them to the 2020s. When you look at some of the 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 hearings they would have in the late 60s or early 70s, how they you know how California got its privacy amendment, um, and you look at the, you just look at the the body of writing and speeches at the time, and these people were warning us about the problems we would have today. People back in the late 60s, late 70s, they got really upset about. Out how there was going to be a central database of like just like license plates or driver's licenses or or something like that, like a very basic thing that is just commonplace now. And they were like, this needs to stop. There can't be a computer system that has information on everyone. They would not have stood for what we have in in 2020. But it is difficult. I think that that what we have is that we have a very, very active industry that is hard selling this to anybody that they can they, anywhere they can find a market law enforcement prisons fire departments malls amusement parks and now communities and yeah it's very difficult for for legislatures and local policymakers to keep up with whatever the new technology is and whatever the new capabilities are and as soon as they write a law saying well this is how we're going to regulate x the Companies then turn around and say, like, well, how can we design our technology to totally bypass that? You know, if there's a rule that says cops can't have license plate readers, well, let's sell them to the local homeowners associations, and then they can give the data to to police. I mean, it it could be any number of things. But we are living in this time right now where you have Flock and you have Ring, these companies that are trying to bridge the police public gap and create a you know a, a surveillance network that is based with the communities but yet still feeding that into law enforcement and that doesn't make it any better that these are like owned by private individuals um you know it's it's all sort of a a, a scheme of marketing to try to convince people that this is what is required in order to to solve or prevent crime now when it comes to you know with things like ring which we're very critical of you can at least think that like oh well if you put a, a camera on my front doorstep, that might prevent somebody from like picking up my package and walking away with it. Maybe. I don't know. Has there been research showing that it really deters people? I mean, we have cameras all over the country. It's not like crime has ceased to exist in the United States despite it. But when it comes to license plate readers, what is it the crime that they're actually trying to solve? Like, is it we've got property theft, we've got vandalism, we've got home invasions, all of these things which which are terrible, right? Like, you know, home invasions are, are you know, scary well, as hell. I mean, Flock, the, yeah. you know, having just interviewed their CEO, I mean, they would say, you know, the rates of solving property crime are very low. And, and the reason for that is they don't have, you know, uh, you know, actionable evidence, you know, of these, of these right. crime break-ins and property theft and stuff like that. Which, which, what I am not convinced is that having license plate readers will actually solve that. If you are the type of career criminal who is going neighborhood to neighborhood, figuring out ways to do property crime and theft and things like that, 
One of the things you're going to learn pretty quickly is not to drive your own car. Or if you are going to drive your own car, to remove the plates from it. Like, like it's, it's, it's not hard, you know, or you steal somebody else's car or you do something. If you are willing to break the law, this is not a difficult technology to overcome. It's easy to evade. You just remove your license plate and then you drive into the neighborhood and then you leave and the license plate reader hasn't helped you at all. So I'm really bought baffled by like what they actually hope to solve. What they do, what they will collect is data on everybody who's obeying the law. Everybody who's not messing with their cars, not bothering anybody, they're going to show up. But if they come home at two in the morning, that's going to show up. If they have cannabis delivery car show up and drop off their medical marijuana joints, that's going to get captured by, by the system. If they have a, a little bit of an affair going on and they have somebody come over while their, their partner's away, that's going to get picked up. Now, that's not anybody's business. It is not illegal. But yet, these systems are going to be documenting that. Given that we can't put the the you know flock safety um, genie back in the bottle um, and uninvent this capability, what, from your standpoint, would be a good set of rules, policies, regulations that would at least um, prevent the most egregious abuses of this type of technology? Well- well, I'm not sure that there is like a way that this is actually going to be used in a responsible way. I have a feeling that in the long term, at least this is my prediction, in the long term, some of these homeowners associations who invested a lot of money in this technology are going to realize that it provided no tangible benefits to them and it's costing them a fortune and they'll get rid of it. I mean, I think that is probably the trajectory. That said, if people are going to move forward with this, you need to take all of the precautions that you would have to take for any sensitive data system and 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 act like you know like treat it like you could get sued into bankruptcy if you don't do it right um, like like to you, you know you're a homeowners association you're like you don't think you're a facebook you don't think you're a google you're just a tiny homeowners association but you're gonna have to act like one because now you're you're controlling a computer system that has people's sensitive data in it. And so that means having audits in place. It means deciding who the limited number of people are who can access the system, what are the circumstances that they can access the system, how do they document that they're accessing the system, who is watching them to make sure that they're accessing the system appropriately. How long are they storing the data? When are they purging the data? How are they making sure that the data has been purged when it said it would be purged? A whole bunch of like exhaustive, boring stuff that anybody else who works in data issues has to deal with. At EFF, we have to deal with it because we've got members who give us their credit cards to donate us money to us. They're on our email list. We have to take that very seriously. And that means these homeowners associations need to have to take it seriously. Flock's not going to take responsibility over that because it's easier for them to let the homeowners association assume all that responsibility. And so they really need to like, you know, if you're going to go about having a license plate reader system, you got to hire a lawyer to analyze it and write your policies for you. You need to hire a cybersecurity consultant to go over the cybersecurity of of the situation. You're probably going to want to get some sort of insurance to go with it. And then on top of that, you're going to want to write detailed policies that are available to everyone explaining how you're going to keep the system safe. So kind of balance the responsibilities with the rights. You know, clearly you've got the right right to own the technology, but if you're going to own it, um, you know, kind of uh, put some responsibilities on the owner of that technology that might make the equation a little bit more thought-provoking. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I think I feel like one of the things that frustrates me is that I feel like Flock markets this technology as as it being easy and simple and like any other software that you could just take out of the box and it works magic. But really, it's not easy. Like owning a car, it's not easy. It maybe looks easy that you can just get in a car and drive away, but you got to have car insurance and you got to keep it maintained and you need to bring it in and you need to, you have to do all sorts of things and a car can actually be a huge pain in the end. Um, and that's how those license plate readers really need to be thought of. That when you're you're, you know, when law enforcement grabs this, it is actually quite a burden on them to manage a license plate reader system. And they've decided that it's it, it's valuable to them to go through all of these hoops and go through all these training and take on all this liability because they're going to solve, you know, they think they're going to solve murders and murders and kidnappings and things like that. But it's not like that with an HOA. They're they they see it as easy and like they just need to install it and they've got this like, you know, one button, you know, push a button and it works kind of software system. But no, there's a whole lot that needs to go into it and it's going to be more difficult for the homeowners associations because they're not cops. And so they don't even have the background training in any of this. Hey, Dave Moss of Electronic Frontier Foundation, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Sure thing. Garrett Langley is the CEO and founder of Flock Security. Dave Moss is a senior investigative researcher at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Up next, attacks on authentication are a common thread in pretty much every major data breach and cyber attack, weak passwords, shared passwords and password reuse between corporate and personal accounts are all major vulnerabilities in corporate defenses. So why don't users seem to care? In the next segment, we're joined by Katie Petrillo of LastPass and LogMeIn to talk about that company's most recent password security survey, which found that insecure password behavior hasn't changed much in recent years, and about strategies that companies can take that might move the needle on password security among their employees. Uh, Katie Petrillo, the manager for LastPass product marketing at LogMeIn. LogMeIn is a company that provides tools for companies to really be able to work from anywhere and allow them to do their com- their business and do it well. LastPass in particular is focused on the identity and password management space. So LastPass is a complete um, password manager as well as a, an identity and access management solution. So what that really means is we offer single sign-on and multi-factor authentication and password management for small businesses. Um, and then we also have a tool for individuals and consumers as well. So like just you and I, we can go use LastPass as a, as a password vault. So all of those passwords that we use on a daily basis, you store them in LastPass just so that they will remember those passwords for you and you never have to remember them. It's great just because, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but you don't have to really think twice about creating a hard, complex password that you then are like, I'm never going to remember that because LastPass will remember it for you. So, and LastPass has been around for a little over 10 years or so now. Um, personally, I've been working at LogMeIn for about, um, actually just over five years um, and really been working with LastPass for about four of them. So it's been a really great journey as we've expanded from really being this password management tool that's a leader for businesses as well as among individuals, but now obviously working into that identity and access space, which is really exciting. 
Yeah, thanks for the uh, the intro to log me in. Um, you know, helping people do business from memory anywhere uh, must be uh, pr- pretty slow times and uh, for you guys. Days, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a roller coaster. I mean, I think it's, we've never been more thankful to be working um, at a company like like Log Me In, doing the things that we need, and it's been great to be able to be a support and a real resource for companies during yeah. these hard times. But I'm guessing pretty busy. Yeah, it's been, it's been chaotic, but in a, I mean, again, thankful in many ways. We're going to talk about password, kind of password behavior and the psychology of passwords, which is a, a study that you guys have done um, a number of years. And, and the most recent version of this uh, report that you guys do came out in in May. Um, t- talk a little bit um, just about the report and um, w- kind of what do you mean by psychology of passwords and, and um, how did you kind of go about pulling this data together? Sure. Just a history on the report. It started, we've um, been doing this now. Again, I said, I mean, LastPass has been around for 10 years or so. We like are very well versed in what people are doing with their passwords and how they're creating them and kind of that journey that they take when they, you know, kind of go from just entering passwords to then being like, oh, there's another solution out there to, okay, I'm going to start using this. Okay, I'm going to start to use complex passwords. Um, And I think as we talk about that journey, it's interesting. It's not just about this like string of letters that you're putting in to enter your to enter and get into your into an account there's a lot more that goes on in your brain and in your mind and in your psychology that ultimately determines how you you deal with your passwords it's like a lot of people that we talk to and they're like what do you use to pa- to create your passwords everyone knows that you they should be secure and random and all that but people don't want to like let go of that control and so a lot of people will be like well i have this i have this mechanism i always use like this name, and then I change the letter, and I change the ca- the the character that goes onto it. So that there's a everybody has this whole like mindset around how they handle passwords. It's really really fascinating. Um, so we started the report again like four years or so ago, and initially it started. We did um it really is about asking people's kind of how do they handle passwords, how do they think about it, do you reuse them, do you how do you remember them, why do you do some of those things? In our very initial report, we actually aligned the answers to people who were like type A versus type B, just to kind of see how the answers varied, and it's it's fascinating. But we launched our most recent report in May, aligned with um it was World Password Day every May. I think it's like the first Thursday in May. So we launch it that day. And there's some there's some definitely some interesting findings in there. But I think probably one of the most interesting things that we've found is that behavior really hasn't changed over the last four years. In the in the three different versions that we've been doing this, it's actually surprising how steady people's behavior has been and not in the best way. Um, People love to reuse their passwords. They um, don't really change them after they, if they know that they've been involved in some sort of like a breach or they say like, okay, X company was breached. I have an account with that company, but I'm Mm -hmm. not going to change my password. Even though they know the (laughs) risks. That's what's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Like they know Mm -hmm. the risks, their concerns, but they just, no one's really taking it seriously. And I think that's, that's what we talk a little bit about in the report is like, why is there this cognitive dissonance? Like, why yeah. is why are people not taking this as seriously as they might think, especially when so much of our of our lives are online right now? So obviously, your yeah. email, your finance, your financials, like your banking, your credit card, everything's online. So why not take more steps to make sure that that information is protected from hackers or the dark web or things like that? So so kind of top line um, message is you know the big reason people cited for not having 
strong or, or, or good password hygiene, which would be, you know, long, unique passwords for every, you know, website or service that they use, which is kind of the gold standard, is not surprisingly, people are afraid of forgetting their password. Mm-hmm. And that fear of forgetting corrals them into having rememberable but insecure passwords. I guess yep. we probably shouldn't be that surprised by that. I guess not. I mean, after three times of doing this and having the results be essentially exactly the same, (laughs) I shouldn't be surprised. But I think we just keep expecting, again, like this like tipping point. Like when are people going to be like, oh, I just saw like five of the major accounts that I use experience a breach or, you know, and when is that going to resonate or hit home? And I think part of it is could just be that when you then when that impacts you personally, it doesn't, until it impacts you personally, you may not see that as a real threat. Um, But yes, I mean, I kind of think about it as like these old habits, they die hard. You know, people are reusing passwords, they're memorizing them, they're forgetting them. The amount of people that you ask them, how do they remember their passwords? And they're like, I don't, I just click forgot password every single time to log in, (laughs) which is crazy. I mean, not yeah. even, not first, even safety or security, but like that's annoying and frustrating. It's a hassle. Why do you yeah. want to and then you get the email and yeah. you reset it? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things about a you know use having a tool is like that people may not realize is like there's a convenience factor. I mean, I yeah. at this point now, yes, I love LastPass for you know for keeping all my accounts safe and secure, but there's a convenience piece. Like everything I know is in LastPass. It's organized. I know where to find it. It's it's accessible. Like I I would be lost without it. Yeah, as would I. Um, I think the other the other kind of top line uh, finding was um, the or the other big reason people cited, of course, for for their their weak password behavior. You know, these these kind of short, rememberable uh, passwords, or they they have their own little trick or algorithm that they use to to make what seems like a random password. Of course, it isn't random at all. Is that they want control, so they. And and I and maybe from LastPass's standpoint, this is the challenge, right? Which is with a password manager, you are kind of trusting the application to do what you used to do, which is keep track of your passwords. And and you're kind of letting go of the obligation to keep track of them yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's a hard that's a really hard concept, especially when you know that password is the key to your bank account or your email. And if you get locked out you know, you're, you feel very, it's, it's, it's alarming. Cause you're like, how do I know that I'm going to be able to get back in and I can't access this information that I really need. So I think that fear of forgetting and that lack of control is definitely the thing that is driving people to reuse. And we've seen this time after time, you know, the fear of forgetting was a real, was a big concept. I think we focused on this in 2016 and it's still a main theme as you're seeing from, from the results. So, I mean, I, yeah. It's 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 crazy. Yeah. It seems too like I, I'm not sure that people I know they know that these tools exist. Like if they're online a lot, they probably either have seen an ad or, you know, have some exposure to it. It's not like I had no idea there was such a thing. You know, like mm-hmm. people know the tools exist. But often when I talk to people like, well, are you using a password manager? They're like, Oh yeah, no, I don't use one of those. You know, it's just <laughs> sort of like Okay, but you really should. You know, it's kind exactly. of like you put a deadbolt on your on your front door. Like, eh, no, I don't, I don't have one of those. 
things. It's like you should really get a deadbolt lock, you know. Right. <laughs> It'll it really help. <laughs> it's really interesting to compare it to physical security like that, whether that's like locking your car or locking your house or putting a like a security system in your in your house. Like that's something that is so commonplace and obviously that's protecting our physical beings and our in our physical things and it's it's like things that are online have less you don't see it so it's not as tangible. You don't I don't know. Is the wor- is it worth less? Even though it's clearly not. It's like everything. I wonder if it's just that it's an abstract risk. Like the deadbolt, it's like, well, a burglar could break into my house and then they'd be in my house with me. And in front and, of my or, face. And my yeah. families. <laughs> yeah. And that's really scary to me. But, you know, somebody stealing my identity, that seems pretty abstract. Like, mm-hmm. well, what does that really mean? And how mm-hmm. would that... Of course, we know that like the stakes are really high, actually. It's incredibly expensive if your identity gets stolen. It's incredibly you know, disruptive to your life and so on. can really impact your credit rating and, and everything else. But it's not some big creepy dude standing in your foyer. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what... It, I do think that's a piece of it is it's not real. And the people... I mean, I think a lot of the people that do opt in to use a password manager are folks that are very security conscious and are very aware of the risks and take them seriously or they're people that have had something happen whether that was they did have their identity stolen or had someone hack into a credit card or something like that and had even if they didn't lose anything they still kind of felt that fear for a little while and and figured there has to be a better way out there interestingly, I mean, one of the things that that came out of the psychology of password report is that even when people do use good uh, hygiene for high value accounts like uh, banking and brokerage accounts and things like that, um, that often their work accounts uh, don't get that degree of treatment. So um, when people sort of organize the hierarchy of their personal accounts and account security, their work accounts often don't end up at the top of that list. Yeah. And I think that's just more of a reason. I mean, this behavior, that's what I think is really interesting. We talk about this as being, yes, this is the behavior of individuals, but all of us as individuals, we take that same behavior and we take it into the workplace. So if we're seeing password reuse, you know, we know that I think it's like about 44% of people are reusing those passwords over and over, even though they know that there's a risk, they're taking that behavior and bringing it into the workplace. So as a, you know, as a CISO or a CIO, or you're just your director of IT and you you have to believe that your employees are probably going to be reusing some of those passwords, whether it's even just to like their Windows login to get into their computer, if it's their Outlook to get into their email, um, they're probably reusing that in multiple places. And that just like opens up that threat vector and how much right. um, potential risk there is right. within the organization. Right. And, um, and to kind of connect the dots for people, you know, a reuse password that turns up in a consumer data breach for a high value employee, if, if they're reusing that within their corporate environment, hackers aren't dumb. They know to like follow that breadcrumb trail to the to the corporate environment and, and try that as well. Good password hygiene is is a little bit of a, a one-two punch. One is, you know, you want strong, unique passwords, you know, 15, 20 character plus unique alphanumeric special characters, 
one for each account. So there's that. But then the the other piece is the multi-factor authentication, and um, and and it's ideally you have both for everything. Um, but w- what's you know your message and LastPass message to consumers about is it both and one or the other? Um, when to be you know using two FA versus you know, in addition to strong, unique passwords, like what's what's your thinking about that, and what's the best message you give to consumers about that? Both every time, any anywhere you can, you want to be using both a long, complex, unique password and adding authentic multi-factor authentication on top of that. And I think most a lot of multi-factor or MFA is becoming a lot more common now, and especially um, you know we have certain authenticators that basically just adding in the second layer of, of security. So you have your password, that's like one key that gets you into your account. And then when you enter that, it, it pings um, your phone or this other, um, this other notification that comes up. And so that is something that if you can turn it on, it's not always available for every single account, but for your, think about your, your top priority accounts, your email, your finance, credit card, um, even he- like health insurance, things like that, add multi-factor where you can, because that's just one more door that a hacker would have to get to- into in order to be able to get into your account. So if they have your password, then they could get in. But if they find your password on the dark web and then they don't have your second um, form authentication, whether that's your phone or a text message or an email, then they can't get in. So uh, we always say add it, add uh, multi-factor whenever you possibly can. Uh, you know, final question, Katie. I mean, obviously, we're we're talking in the midst of a global pandemic of COVID nineteen. Um, it's been a huge t- transformation in in the workplace in just the last three or four months. Um, as people went from off working in offices to working from home, there's been a lot written about sort of the cybersecurity, information security impact of that, w- which has generally been very challenging for companies. But wondering, you know, what LogMeIn's perspective on it is, and whether work from home exacerbates any of these problems or not? I think one of the main results of the the pandemic has been people have obviously been at home and whether you are working or not, you're spending a lot more time online. So individuals might just be browsing the internet, watching YouTube, (laughs) watching video. Yeah. So much time online. And obviously those of us that are working from home, we're on our personal Wi-Fi networks and we're on our, you know, we're on a variety of different devices, just getting work done. Um, and I think one of the unfortunate downside, down our side effects of the pandemic and spending more time online is we have seen hackers taking advantage of these things, um, particularly with like phishing attacks. That's been something that we've seen. And that's when, you know, these emails that come in, they may be fi- trying to impersonate whether it's your company or some comp or some comp tool that you already use. Um, and getting you to click on some sort of nefarious link and then ultimately trying to steal your information. And we've definitely seen an uptick in that. Um, and there's been other security risks across, even in the conference world, in the, confer- in the on- online conferences world. So this has been something that has, has really ticked up, which is really unfortunate, but all the more reason to have, to kind of know the risks that are about there, you know, don't be paranoid about it, but also just be aware and be safe and take the precautions that you can. And again, all the more reason goes back to that last question all the more reason to have really strong passwords in place and have that second factor set up so that you have a couple lines of defense if and when someone does try to hack into some of your accounts or steal something from you. Katie Petrillo of uh, LastPass LogMeIn, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Paul. This has been great. Katie Petrillo is a senior marketing manager 
for LastPass at LogMeIn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger Podcast, sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com.